We uh, are grateful once again for our time in uh, the things of the Lord and the Word of God, and I want to uh, encourage you to uh, um, continue to be good thinkers and to think biblically as we think together along with Greg, and let's give him a warm uh, welcome once again as he opens. <laughs> Thank you. It's amazing I can still get a laugh out of that. I mean, you guys are great. <clears throat> well, I had some interesting conversations uh, this afternoon with people about the material. So it sounds like I've, uh, can you, somebody just turn that one off for me? Sounds like I put a stone, some stones in some shoes, which is good, you know? And I, look, at everybody's not gonna agree with me on uh, these issues, that's fine. You don't answer to me. I hope that what I've done has got you to think more carefully about the biblical record pertaining to this issue. I do want to clear up one point of confusion, and it's something that happens virtually every time I teach on this. Uh, somebody at dinner uh, leaned over and said to me, by way of summation, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying that God never speaks to anyone. Now, this is something that seems to get heard a lot when I do the teaching, but it is not something that I've said. In fact, my statements are not really about God at all. My statements are about the Bible. My statements are not about what God can or can't or will or will not do, because as far as I'm concerned, God can do anything he wants. He can speak to any, somebody any way he wants, any how he wants, whatever. Um, but I can't teach whatever I want, and nor can Christian teachers. We have to teach from the base of authority, and the base of authority isn't our common experience or our individual experience, but rather the Word of God. And so I have been making claims about what the Bible does or does not teach. And with regards to the, the general teaching that has been going around in many places about hearing the voice of God... Um, and it is offered as something that is an important spiritual discipline. If it is an important spiritual discipline, it ought to be taught in the Scripture. And I have said that there is no place in Scripture where this is taught or modeled or encouraged or anything like this. And therefore, those who are teaching that this is a spiritual discipline are not teaching it based on the authority of Scripture. That's really the claim I'm making. And of course, if Scripture doesn't teach it, then it's not a standard Christian discipline. And something as, I would say, as, as weighty a claim as to say that God will speak and have a conversational kind of relationship with everybody, that needs scriptural justification, it seems to me. So, uh, and, and given that the, the, the Bible seems to be utterly silent on the kinds of things that people have been teaching, this, this to me is not a good sign. And it seems to me that then people are speaking out of turn with regards to the Bible when they're teaching this. I did talk to a young lady, by the way, who said that in, I think, her youth group or some Christian group she was associated with, they taught the group how to hear the voice of God. And they told, if I understood uh, the account properly. They told the students to quiet yourself and empty your mind and stop thinking, and then what pours into your mind is going to be God. And so when the exercise was finished, all of these students had all of these exciting things to say about all the things that God had told them. 
So this is happening. And this, that, by the way, that came from a member of this group here. So this is happening all over the, all over the country, and, uh, in, and I am questioning the biblical legitimacy of that because I think it causes a relativistic perspective in Christians and draws them away from the authority of the word and into subjective experience. And at that point, then they are really being influenced by a worldly way of thinking instead of by a biblical way of thinking. Okay, so that's just a point of clarification. I want, to, uh, I want you to consider something, because I did talk about in that talk, I, I suggested there were actually three different traditions that we have in the church that are more kind of received traditions. They're the kinds of things that are happening in our midst, and it isn't so much that people are always teaching these things, it's just that they're kind of assumed and practiced, and you hear about them in conversation, and so consequently people are uh, socialized to believe these. They kind of absorb it, and uh, they all have to do with receiving special, some special revelation or a, uh, um, a communication from God about something that we think is important. And I I mentioned that one of them is the way we read our Bibles, and we read our Bibles not always to find the meaning of the text in its context, which is God's teaching to us, but rather to find individual messages, which I claim are not there. And so when we find individual messages that we say from God, we're speaking presumptively again. I also talked about the hearing the voice of God kind of thing at length. So, But there was the, the one that I left out that had to do how, with how we made decisions. Now, so I want to address that for the rest of our time together because this is a very, very important issue and very little could, in practical matters, is more important than knowing how to decide things in a godly biblical fashion. We're making decisions all the time. We're making big decisions. We're making small decisions. And sometimes, if you reflect on it, it's the smaller decisions that you made that you didn't think really mattered that much that ended up having the biggest impact in the long term. So, so it is critical for us to be able to know exactly how to do that properly. And since the, the Bible promises guidance, what does biblical guidance look like? And again, there is a received tradition about this that I want to challenge and, and offer you some thoughts from Scripture regarding this and then suggest a different model that I think is a sounder model. And you can decide whether I've made my case or not. But um, <clears throat> I, I want to start um, with an illustration. And I, I'm going to make a request of you for a moment. And it's, it's kind of like an odd psychological request. Since we are so, sometimes the things that we, we believe are absorbed so effectively and subconsciously it's hard even to get out of the box somehow and see from the outside what it looks like. It's like asking a fish what it's like to be wet. Well, the fish is just always wet. He doesn't know what wetness is like. And so it's, it's difficult sometimes to challenge our assumptions because we're so wrapped up in these things, they all feel right to us. Um, and so I, I just want to give a little illustration that is meant to try to take you outside for a minute and look inside and maybe have a different perspective on this general enterprise. Here's the illustration. Let's say you went to a, a doctor, and the doctor uh, said, said that you're very sick and that you, you need an, an antidote uh, to save your life, but not to worry that he has the antidote. The doctor has this important thing that you desperately need. And you say, Whew, 
wow, I'm glad to hear that. Where is it? And the doctor says, it's somewhere in the building. <laughs> you say, what do you mean it's somewhere in the building? This is a big building. I mean, first floor, second floor, third floor. And when you say third floor, the doctor goes, Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. What, you mean it's on the third floor? In other words, the doctor has something absolutely critical for your well-being. But instead of giving you the thing that he says you need, he gives you a bunch of hints and winks and nudges so that you can figure this out. If you had a doctor that treated you that way, would you stay with the doctor long? What if you, what if parents told their children, I have something that you have to do, and if you don't do it, you're going to get in big trouble. And so the kids say, okay, what is it, mommy? And you say, <laughs> and do that right now. Well, you're laughing because this is ridiculous, but... This strikes me as a good illustration about the way people understand the process of biblical decision-making. Because godly Christians desperately want to do what God wants them to do. And they are convinced that God has made certain decisions regarding their lives that they need to find out from God in order to make the decisions themselves. But the way they think that God communicates those decisions is in a, um, well, he, he gives little hints. And our job is to try to figure out how to decipher those hints in order to know what God wants us to do so that we can do this. This is the received tradition, actually. Um, put simply, first, God has made the decisions in life for us. We call this uh, variously God's blueprint for our life, or God's plan for our life, or God's will for our life. God knows. And, and, and God is in a much, he's, he's in a much better position to make decisions for me than I am, which is true, by the way. I agree with that point. The real question is, how does God actually help us make decisions? Well, on this view, God has made the decisions already. That is, he knows who he wants you to marry and what ministry he wants you to get into or maybe get into secular work or what school you ought to go to or how you ought to spend your money and some investment and lots of different particulars. And so as faithful Christians, we want to do what God wants us to do. Um, and so since he doesn't tell us those things directly, he communicates them in a cipher, dropping hints that we can then, if we, if we get them right, we can cobble them together into a collection of hints that push us in the direction that we, that we uh, then can be confident is God's direction for our lives on this issue. And if we are, if we are um, in order to be successful, we have to learn to read those signs effectively. And um, the, the, the leadings, the confirmations, the having a peace about it, the open doors, the nudges, the hints, the 
uh, fleeces uh, of these kinds of things, the confirmations that these are the things we're cobbling together to construct this understanding of God's will. And what I, uh, by the way, does what I just described to you sound familiar? <clears throat> because I run into this all the time, and um, in fact, when I raise a question about its propriety, there are people who think that I've lost my mind. I had a fellow sitting behind me in a philosophy class in grad school, and uh, he had listened to the decision-making, the will of God material that Stand to Reason puts out, which is the material I'm covering for the rest of our session. And he said, when I, he, he, he said, oh, are you the guy who did that thing? Because it was like six weeks into the course, and, and he realized that, you know, I was the guy. I said, yeah. He said, when I listened to that for the first time, I was so angry at you. I, it had never occurred to me in my Christian life to question this model. And then when you questioned it, I thought you were out of your mind. It took him like three or four listenings of this before he finally came around. This is what he told me. Because there was this kind of uh, bias against it. So the question in my mind is not whether God is involved in the process of decision-making. The question is, biblically, how is he involved? And I would like to analyze this conventional wisdom from the text because this technique of cobbling together the hints is justified by certain appeals to proof texts. And I want to go back to those texts one by one to see if they actually teach what people are claiming. They teach in supporting uh, this particular point of view. And then I want to hopefully disabuse you of your conviction regarding that and show you what I think is a more biblical model of decision-making. Uh, but before I can suggest that, we've got to start from the beginning and, and kind of deconstruct before we construct and build up again. Um, incidentally, when, when we are pursuing these, um, these little hints and ciphers, we have ways of talking about this. And sometimes we'll say, well, I feel led, or I feel the Lord is uh, telling me, or I think God wants me to do this, or maybe God is calling me, or I believe it's God's will that I such and so, or I've received lots of confirmation, or I have a peace about it, or I don't want to get ahead of God, for example. And these are all phrases that are part of this system. They are reflecting back on this system. And, and you can answer this for yourself, but um, I know for a lot of people, when they are exposed to this, at least at first, and the, the way people have talked about this, they, they start to wonder, well, why is it that they are not getting all of these little divine interventions that they hear other people are getting? What, what, what's wrong with them is what they're thinking. Why don't, why don't they have this kind of sixth sense, this ability to hear or to discern uh, that, that everybody else seems to have? And it starts to make them feel a little bit like a substandard Christian. Again, maybe you haven't felt that, but a lot of people have. Um, but the basic presumption of this model is first that God is the one who decides. And once God has decided, then we just have to figure out what his decision is so we can make our decision. And the way we figure that out is by deciphering the code. When I was a, a fairly young Christian, this was something that drove me crazy. 
I, I wanted to kind of play along with the system, and I, I attempted to do that for a while, but it just, it just seemed to be very hit and miss for me. And uh, until I started to really look carefully about, at this issue, and I, there were some things that helped me, John MacArthur's uh, material, Found God's Will, I listened to that, what was then a tape, I must have listened to it 25 or 30 times. I mean, I could give you long quotes from that using John MacArthur's inflections. You know, it, was, it had burned that much into me. And then I read another book called Decision-Making the Will of God by Gary Friesen. And this helped me to go back to the text and make an assessment. Because I wanted to figure out what God's will for my life was. And I figured if God had a will for me, that he would put the will in the most obvious place. And where do you think that the most obvious place to find God's will might be? Hint, hint. His word. So what I decided to do is go back to the scripture and put this methodology to the test. And I am going to step by step go through the passages that are used as a proof text for this technique. And you can decide for yourself if the text supports it or not. But I'll just put it in the negative, what I did not find in the New Testament. I did not find, or rather another way of putting it is, the Bible did, does not teach that we get guidance from a feeling. Now, I'm choosing my words very carefully. I'm saying the Bible does not teach that we get guidance from a feeling. For example, feeling led. We had a discussion this afternoon about the role of feelings and God working. I think God sovereignly works sometimes to put feelings in us to push us forward he puts salt in the feed bag to make us thirsty, for example, but that's how he gets the job done. That isn't the way he communicates to us. The point being, we don't have to look at our feelings and say, oh, wait a minute, is that from God or is that from the devil or uh, where, is that from me? Heaven forbid, you know, as if there was something wrong if it was just your intention to help fulfill the Great Commission in a particular way. Um, God has all kinds of secret ways of fulfilling his sovereign purposes. We don't need to worry about what God is doing behind the curtain of his sovereignty. The question I'm facing is, is does the Bible teach that we should pay attention to feelings as hints from God as to what he has decided he wants us to do? And the answer that I'm giving to that is no, because I haven't found it in the New Testament. Now, there are two verses that really uh, uh, capture a phrase that people use all the time, and that is being led by the Spirit. And so when I make a statement like I offered, people will say, well, don't you believe you're led by the Spirit? That's right in the Bible, for goodness sake. How can you deny it? It's right there in Romans 8 and Galatians 5. There it is, led by the Spirit. You're denying we're led by the Spirit. Now, when people say that, they have a certain understanding of what led by the Spirit means, don't they? Because this is the way, in common parlance, terminology in, in Christianity now, we are using this phrase consistently among ourselves. When we say we felt led by the Spirit, we are talking about feeling a nudge to go in a, different, a certain direction, and we take that as an indication that God wants us to do that. So when we go back to the text and read the phrase led by the Spirit, we read the same meaning into the text, but this may not be the meaning that the writer had in mind when he uses the terminology. Are you following what I'm doing so far? So, and this isn't the only case where this happens, but we have to be careful 
that we are not reading our 20th century and 21st century evangelical terminology into biblical language, but we want to see what the author himself meant by the term. So let's do that. Take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to practice the principle that I uh, mentioned this morning that will keep you from misunderstanding in many cases what the text means. And what was that principle I offered? Never? Never what? I said never read a Bible verse. And of course the emphasis on it is never read a Bible verse. If you want to know what a Bible verse means, you have to read more than that Bible verse. Well, this is in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we find this verse around verse 14. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. There it is, Coco. QED, it's over with. You're refuted. There it is, right there. Led by the Spirit. Okay, well, great. Now I have to ask a question, though. What is Paul's line of thought, flow of thought in the passage? What is going on in the passage? So let me start at the chapter, the first verse of the chapter. And I'm not going to read everything, but I'm going to jump through this just a little bit. So you get a sense of what's going on here. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is a conclusion that he's come to based on the argument he has prosecuted so far through the book of Romans. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of... Uh, from, uh, I'm sorry. For the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, Paul is saying so far is Jesus has done something for us. He has brought us liberty because he's a he has made it possible for us to accomplish something that the law was never capable of accomplishing. And that is giving us the power to live a holy life because we have been taken out of that old covenant system and now we have a new covenant with the spirit and forgiveness and fellowship with God that enables us to accomplish this. He makes a contrast between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. And this is where he goes from here. For those who live according to the flesh, verse 5, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Notice two trajectories, all right? Two trajectories is identifying there. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Watch these words. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul is saying that every single Christian, by definition, is in the Spirit if he's regenerate. We sometimes use the phrase in the Spirit, meaning, well, we're doing well, and then when we're sinning, we're in the flesh. But that isn't the way Paul's using it. He's saying there's two different groups of people. One group of people is pursuing the flesh, and they're set their minds on the things of the flesh. They cannot please God. And they are captured, not liberated. They are captive to the flesh, where Jesus has liberated us because we live according to the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us the power to overcome those that, that sinful life that we used to live in. And he goes on more with this discussion. 
we'll jump to verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're not in the flesh. We're in the Spirit, so we ought to be living, be living by the Spirit, he's saying. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let me read that again because I moved fast on that one. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are are sons of God. So there's our verse. So where is it that our verse now appears in the flow of thought? Our verse appears in the flow of thought where Paul is describing two trajectories, and the trajectory after the Spirit is where the Christian lives, and in the process of living in the Spirit, he is, he is putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and then in parallel to that phrase in the next sentence, for those who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. Now, according then to this flow of thought, well, let me back up for just a moment. Is there any suggestion in this passage so far that this is a discussion about decision-making and the will of God? There's nothing in there. This is about overcoming the flesh in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, what does the phrase led by the Spirit then mean in this context according to Paul's use? It means putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It means we are living in the power of the Spirit who is carrying us along with His power to help us overcome a sinful life. Being led by the Spirit does not mean getting prompts from the Spirit. Paul doesn't mean that here. That is completely foreign to the text. And one way you can find out, by the way, is you can take that interpretation of the passage and make it a paraphrase. Say, well, led by the Spirit means getting prompts so you can make decisions. And insert the paraphrase into the text and see if it makes any sense with the flow. And you'll see it doesn't make any sense at all. It's completely foreign to what's going on. What Paul means here by being led by the Spirit is by the Spirit's power we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's the parallelism. Now, there's only one other place in the New Testament where, Paul, where, where the phrase led by the Spirit is used, and that's also Paul, and it's in Galatians 5. And what we'll see is in Galatians 5, he uses the phrase in exactly the same way. So let's flip over to Galatians 5 now. And I read um, Romans 8 earlier today, the whole section here that we just described. I also re read Galatians 5 just to refresh myself. In Galatians 5, Paul starts a section where he is talking about the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom from the law and the freedom from enslavement to sin. By the way, does that sound familiar given what we just discussed out of Romans 8? Isn't that the same theme? It's exactly the same theme. And has, as he talks about the freedom that we have in Christ from verse 1 and uh, through 13, he tells us we have this great freedom. Don't be placed under the yoke of slavery anymore, which is the yoke of the law, but rather use your freedom for living righteously. Don't use your freedom to sin. And then he, this brings us basically to the section in question 
verse 16. And now I, I'm going to read from the New American Standard, which I'm a little more comfortable with than the ESV, which as I started here. But I say, walk by the Spirit, Paul says, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Notice the same theme here. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh for those who are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, there's our phrase, you are not under the law. And the reason you're not under the law is because you're, you're already doing the things of the law is the point. I want you to see here that the phrase walk by the Spirit is parallel with being led by the Spirit. They mean the same thing. This is a discussion about the same thing that Paul was discussing in Romans 8. What Paul was discussing there and here is the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in our life. Not doing the deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, etc., but rather bringing the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's right in the next section. Is there any sense, as we read this passage, where it uses the phrase led by the Spirit, that Paul is talking about getting nudges for personal decision-making? That's completely foreign to the text. This entire section is about overcoming the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit, and Paul uses two phrases to describe that that are in parallel to each other and that are synonymous. And those phrases are walk by the Spirit and led by the Spirit because he identifies a spiritual battle we're in between the flesh and walking by the Spirit or being led by the Spirit will allow us to overcome the battle and overcome the flesh. What does Paul mean by the phrase led by the Spirit? In both particular cases where you see it, Romans 8 and Galatians 5, he means one thing, overcoming the flesh in the power of the Spirit. He doesn't mean getting nudges. Now, this is the only place that I know of in the New Testament that people have used to indicate or used as a proof text to show that God drops nudging hints to show us his will. Yet it turns out that these two verses do not teach that at all. They're not about that. They teach something entirely different. Which is why I conclude the Bible does not teach we get guidance from feeling led. Well, what about... Actually, let me pause for a second. Because I think that there's an applicational problem to the felt-led theology. And the problem is, it often makes God look capricious. If you pay attention to people who have applied this in their life, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, they feel led in one direction, and then they pursue that for a little while, and all of a sudden they feel led in another direction, they pursue that, and then they feel led in another direction. And so they're bouncing back and forth and back and forth. God clearly has spoken to them regarding this in one direction, and then all of a sudden they're going the other direction. Um, and I think Christians end up doing bizarre things, led on by feelings of what they think God wants, and that makes them unstable. But a worse problem is, is it tends to give divine authority to our own feelings. Because if somebody says, I feel God is leading me to do such and so, what are you going to say to them? I don't think so. If you try to argue against them, who are, now, who are you now arguing against? 
You're fighting God. If God has already told them this, now you're fighting God. And it makes it very different, difficult uh, to assess the, the decisions that they're making. Um, you can't argue with that person. So trusting in her feelings as an authority is not biblical, and I think it, it, it also can be dangerous. What else did I find when I did my analysis? Well, I found that the Bible did not teach that we got guidance from inner peace. Now, this is a, uh, one of the part of the technique that, is, that comes from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, and the phrase there says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, the word rule, some have noted, means to act as the arbiter or the judge. And so the application then would be, when you're thinking about a decision and you're trying to find God's will, if you just pray about it, if you feel a peace about it, that is, that is the peace being the judge on the decision. That's God's green light that that's where he wants you to go. And if you don't feel a peace about it, then that's God saying no. Okay, well, I understand the application. The question is, is that what... Colossians 3.15 is actually teaching. So let's turn there. Colossians 3. And we're going to start uh, up towards the... Uh, uh, let's see here. We're going to start uh, in verse 12. That's where the section or the paragraph starts. Paul gives this instruction here. I just want you to follow the flow of thought that brings us to a verse. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the perfect bond of unity, it says in the New American Standards. Now, I want you to pause there for a moment. What, what's going on here in this passage so far? What is, somebody here tell me, what, what, in general, how would you characterize the kind of thing that Paul is addressing? What is he talking about? Yes. Uh, he's talking about aspects of living as a new, new man. A new man, but relative to what? Yes. Christian unity. Christian unity. It's about Christians getting along with each other. Fair enough? And he's given all these guidelines. So this is a passage about Christian unity. Put on love, which is the perfect... Bond of unity. So what suggestion do we have here about any technique being discussed about decision-making? Do we have any hint of that? No, except for like, you know, be one with each other, be unified, all right? And then we come to our, our verse. And let the peace of Christ, I'll back up. And above all these, put out a love which binds together everyone in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are all called in one body and be thankful. Hmm. Do you see that let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts now has taken on a little different texture when you see it in the flow? Incidentally, do you know, did you notice that the word peace means has an objective sense and a subjective sense. That is, 
Peace could be the feeling of peace in our heart, right? Peace also could be the lack of conflict between people in our lives. So two nations are at peace with each other when the war is over. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore, being justified by, pa- by faith, we have peace with God. That means we're not fighting anymore. That's the objective sense of peace. In uh, Philippians 4, it says, uh, Make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a feeling of peace, isn't it? So, since peace could be a feeling, or it could be an object state, objective state of affairs, we have to figure out what sense of peace Paul means in this passage. Now, when people use this phrase, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts for decision-making, do they mean the objective sense or do they mean the subjective feeling? Subjective. The subjective feeling. All right. So our question is, is Paul talking about a subjective feeling in this verse or is he talking about an objective state of affairs of peace between Christians? What think you now that we've looked at the passage? This is about the objective peace between Christians. Put on love the perfect bond of unity. It, he's not talking about a feeling at all here. He is talking about the harmony that's, that, that, that we are to pursue in the context of the body of Christ. There's nothing here that has anything to do with a subjective sense of peace that guides us in decision-making. And by the way, this is the only verse I have ever heard cited in support of the idea of peace being one of those little guidelines to help decipher God's will. So the Bible, second now, does not teach we get guidance from inner peace. It's, instead, this is a text that's been misused. All right. By the way, have you noticed, by the way, there can be applicational problems of using peace as an indicator of what you're supposed to do? Have you ever had it in, in your life where you knew the right thing to do, but you didn't feel good about it? Sure. Uh, do you think Jesus at Gethsemane had peace about going to the cross? I wouldn't say that's true based on the way he prayed. He was tormented. Um, Moses, did he have peace? When he was told to go and confront Pharaoh, no. So there are lots of times you're not going to have peace when you are faced and confronted with doing the right thing. On the other hand, there are lots of times you have peace about doing the wrong thing. I have talked to lots of people who said, I went before the Lord in this relationship that I'm in, which was not the right kind of relationship, and I just have a peace about it as if that's going to justify the relationship. So this, even in applicational situations, there's a problem here. What about open and closed doors? What about this idea that uh, one way we are able to decipher God's will is look at the, the doors that close or the doors that are open? Because the presumption here is that if the door is closed, then that means that God is saying no. And if the door is open, then this is an, an indication that God wants us to go through that door. So this is another part of the, of the technique. Well, the notion of uh, open and closed doors um, is, is a mixed bag in the New Testament. That is that Paul walked through some open doors. And if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9, you'll find this statement. 
Paul was in Ephesus writing to Corinth. He said, I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So, Paul has an opportunity, and in this particular case in Ephesus, he decides to stay. I think he was in Ephesus uh, for two years. He had a school there. He trained Christians while he was in Ephesus. He saw a great opportunity. Now, some people are going to say, there it is, an open door. That's, that's God's indication that he should stay. But if you flip the page over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you find another open door that, that Paul ignored completely. Verses 12 and 13. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Wow. In 1 Corinthians, he has an open door and he walks through it. In 2 Corinthians, he has an open door that he even describes in the Lord but apparently he does not see that as any imperative or sign whatsoever, but he was free to decide for himself whether he'd go through it or not. He said, no, I miss Titus. I wanted to see Titus. I left, and I went on to Macedonia to see Titus. So it seems to me that in Paul's way of thinking about it, he did not see open and closed doors as definitive as a sign from God that God wanted him either not to do it or to do it, depending but in Acts chapter 16, we have the most dramatic open door that Paul does not walk through. And if you recall, Paul is, had been preaching there in Macedonia, in Philippi, and got himself arrested. And he and his buddies were up in the prison cell in the middle of the night, praising God, being in chains and locked inside the cell. And while they were praising God, there was an earthquake. The chains fell off of their hands, and the prison door opened. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think God was responsible for that door opening supernaturally? Absolutely. But what did Paul do? I know what I would have done. Oh, my gosh, let's get out of here. Praise the Lord. Paul didn't do that. He sat there. The Philippian jailer, aware of what happened, reasoned that all the prisoners had just escaped. He was about to fall on his sword, which means commit suicide, knowing he's going to be executed anyway because he lost his prisoners. And Paul calls out of the darkness, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the Philippian jailer, trembling, comes in, falls on his knees, he says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, you and your whole family. The Philippian jailer takes them out, binds up their wounds, cleans them up, and his whole family is saved. So there is a supernaturally opened door that Paul chooses not to go through, even though there's no question that God had opened that door. Now, I've had some people at this point, and this just shows the tenacity with which people will cling to this idea. 
People have said to me, I know why Paul didn't walk out that door. How do you know? Well, why not? It's because God told him to stay, stay put. Well, where is that in the text? It's nowhere in the text. It's in their theology. They had to read it in in order to preserve their theology. And this is a mistake. Take it at face value. Paul did not consider open and closed doors to be signs from God in any sense, but rather merely opportunities that he either could act on or ignore. It was up to him. That was Paul's approach. So, not only does the Bible, the Bible not teach that we get guidance from inner feelings, like feeling led, it does not teach that we get guidance from having a peace about it. It does not teach that we get guidance from open and closed doors. And when I say get guidance, that these are God's hints about what he wants us to do. What about the idea of fleeces and providential signs? Well, fleeces come from uh, the account in Judges 6 and 7, Gideon, who was a judge, put out the fleece regarding... Uh, some enterprise that God wanted him to do. Now, what's interesting about Gideon's situation is when we think about putting out the fleece, we're thinking, okay, I'm feeling led about this, and I'm having a piece about it, but I'm still not sure, so I'm going to put out a fleece and see how God responds to the, the fleece, because we don't put fleeces down, we put something else out. And depending on how God responds to the fleece, uh, then we will have further confirmation that this is what God wants us to do. And then they cite Gideon as an example. What's curious about Gideon, when you read the entire account, Judges 6, I think starting in verse 11, God had already indicated what he wanted Gideon to do. Because an angel of the Lord had showed up and supernaturally communicated to him that he wanted Gideon to be a warrior against the Midianites on behalf of the Jews. Now, Gideon's not exactly the most courageous guy. So even though an angel of the Lord appears to him, he's having doubts. So what he does is he throws out a fleece, like fur, you know, a goatskin, and he says, God, when the dew falls in the morning, have it fall on the ground, but not on the fleece. Make the fleece dry and the ground wet. So, in fact, that's what God did. The fleece was dry and the ground was wet. But that wasn't enough for Gideon. He said, how about best two out of three? This time make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And in, in fact, God actually um, accommodated him. That still wasn't enough for Gideon. And so Gideon then disguised himself. He goes down into the camp of the Midianites. And he's sitting there huddled on the fire listening to what they're talking about. And one of the Midianites said, you know, I had a bad dream the other night. Last night I dreamt that there was a barley loaf that rolled down the hill and destroyed our camp. And surely the God of the Jews has given us into the hand of Gideon. So now from the mouth of the enemy, he's getting a further sign, which was now the fourth sign that God had given him about what he wanted to do. And then, therefore, the event went forward and God had his victory through Gideon. So what are we to make of this passage? Do, 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 do we get the sense that what Gideon did was appropriate? Well, what Gideon was doing in this circumstance was an expression of his doubt, not his faith in God. All right? 
So I don't think Gideon is, is, a, is a, a model for us to follow in any event. We're certainly not instructed in the New Testament to put out fleeces and have providential signs. There's only one of the kind in the New Testament that I know of, and that's choosing the disciple to replace Judas. And there they cast lots, but even in the case of casting lots, they, they narrowed it down through an objective criterion to two men, and they didn't know, and so they just flipped a coin basically at that time. And they chose uh, an apostle to be, replace Judas. But nothing like this is a standard of decision-making do we find in the New Testament. I'll tell you what, there's another problem with this kind of thing. And the problem is in the application. So not only does the Bible not teach that we seek guidance from fleeces, in the case of Gideon, we don't get the message from there either that this was appropriate. But... Um, the, the prob, there's a problem in application. So I had a fellow that um, I was considering as a mentor once in my life, an older Christian man and his wife, and I had a girlfriend at the time, and we were thinking about going and putting ourselves under their mentorship, as it were. And uh, we met with him a couple of times, and then the man told me, he says, we, we have a way of determining what God wants us to do, because God wants you to know his will. And this is the sense of the plan that God wants you to know the individual purpose for your life, and he's going to tell you. So what we do is we put out a fleece, and the fleece we use is uh, every day there is uh, one of these little newspaper things that's attached to our doorknob by somebody walking down and advertising something, right? It's, every day there's a new one, they've got to take it off and throw it away. So we ask God, if you want us to do whatever this is, then don't let a newspaper person put the thing on the doorknob today. And if the, news, if the thing's on the doorknob, we know that God's saying no. And if it's off the doorknob, then we know that God's saying yes. It's just actually happening. Now, I, I, I decided I did not want to put this man under, I mean, go under this man as a, as a mentor. Because do you see the problem with this? How do you know that maybe the person just decided not to put a thing on the door that day? How, how, how do you keep from getting a false negative or a false positive there? Now, Gideon's fleece was a supernatural fleece. That wasn't a supernatural fleece. So if a person really is intent on using a fleece to determine God's will, they should put out a supernatural fleece. So instead of saying, okay, well, um, we don't want the newspaper on our doorknob, you should say this, God, if you want me to do this, Levitate the piano. Well, you're not going to get a false positive, are you? Because the, the piano is not going to levitate by chance. But the problem, there's another problem with doing that. Because what if the piano doesn't levitate? Then you'll think God is saying no. But maybe God doesn't want to speak through a fleece at all. So you might get a false negative, though you won't get a false positive. So what you need to do, if you're going to do it right, to do it safely, you have to have a fleece that goes, is supernatural in both directions. You say, God, if you want me to go, levitate the piano. If you don't want me to go, levitate the couch. <laughs> now, if they don't le nothing levitates, what can we conclude from that? That God is not going to speak through your fleece one way or another. That's the safe way to do it. And even though we, we, we're chuckling a little bit with that, I'm not making fun. 
Gideon's fleece was supernatural. If we want to follow Gideon, we should use a supernatural fleece on both sides so we're not mistaken. All right? So the Bible does not teach then that we are to get guidance from fleeces. Hmm. What about confirmations? Now, this is part of the language that I hear. This, this, and this happened, and these are confirmations that I'm moving in the right direction. And they can go, people go to the New Testament. There are actually one, two, three, four references in the New Testament to this idea. Matthew 18, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Timothy 5, and Hebrews 10. Every one of them is making reference to an Old Testament legal principle. And that principle is, from the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact will be confirmed. And so you don't execute somebody based on the testimony of one person. You have multiple witnesses that affirm the guilt of that person. And this is a, for safeguarding justice. Now, here's my question. Yes, the New Testament teaches that. But is this application of that New Testament teaching appropriate? The New Testament teaching is drawing on an Old Testament teaching about making decisions basically uh, for jurisprudence. And that's the kind of circumstance that we see in, virtually, in every single case here that this is cited in the New Testament. Confirmations are meant to confirm some other testimony. But what is the testimony that we're meant to confirm? Well, in this case, it's whether a person's guilty or innocent. That's the way the New Testament is using it, but that's not what we're doing here with decision-making. We're using multiple confirmations to confirm other signs, but these are signs themselves, which we've argued so far, are not really sound in, in uh, using to determine God's will. So I don't see any appropriate application of the concept of multiple witnesses and confirmations to this enterprise of personal decision-making to figure out what God wants you to do. There's no application of such of that, uh, of that at all here in the New Testament. Um, there is no evidence in these verses that a convergence of divine hints or confirmations is the way that God communicates His will to us. It's simply not the way those passages are used in the New Testament. So, I mean, just a quick recap here. I'm trying to figure out, as a student, how to know God's will. People have told me, here's how you find out God's will. God has decided for you, and he's going to communicate to you um, through leadings and through peace and uh, through open doors and through fleece, fleeces and confirmations. However, when I go back to every single one of those things in, this, in the verses that people are citing for me as support of their view, I found, find out that not in any case do these verses support the methodology. So a question may come up here. This, this is not looking good for the system so far. But the question that might come up is, does God ever give specialized guidance in the Bible? Now, what I've argued is the system that's delivered to us is not sound because the Bible doesn't teach that. But there are places in the Bible where God gives specialized guidance, and if he gave it then, he could give it now, and I agree entirely. There are occasions in the Bible, and I see no reason why God wouldn't do that in our modern time like he did in the past. However, I want to make an observation about those occasions of special guidance. Now let's just focus on the New Testament because that's where we're going to get our basic day-to-day -day instruction on this kind of thing. 
There are three characteristics of that guidance that we see in every single case of when it happens in the New Testament. Here's the first characteristic. Personalized guidance in the New Testament is rare. In fact, I could say this is true for the entire Bible. Personalized guidance where God telling an individual, you do this thing, is rare. Surveying the book of Acts, there are only 14 occasions from the time of Pentecost to the end of the book of Acts, 30 years, where God intervenes and gives a special directive. Which is kind of amazing, considering that uh, the New Testament book of Acts is where all of this stuff is supposedly happening all the time everywhere. It turns out to almost never happen, even in the book of Acts. Now, um, only one of Paul's missionary journeys, he had three of them, just the first one was specifically directed by God, Acts 13.2. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So there's a direct quote of what the Holy Spirit said. Now, how did the Holy Spirit say this? Well, if you look in the verse before it, it says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that were there prophets and teachers. And it names them, and it says, While they were ministering, the Holy Spirit said. What is the most likely conclusion we've we draw from those two, the conjunction of those two verses. Probably the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets who were there. Now, I'm making an assumption to some degree because it doesn't say one or another, but it certainly doesn't indicate that Holy Spirit just nudged somebody, and it does say there were prophets there. So that strikes me as the most reasonable way to understand that passage. By the way, the other missionary journeys, you don't have that kind of guidance. Um, So... So there, there were occasions of this in the book of Acts, but they were rare considering all the things that happened. And I went through the book of Acts, and I identified 70 different decisions that were made by the apostles in the process of doing ministry in which there was no indication that God had said anything. And in fact, in a number of cases, it says that they simply decided, like the second missionary journey, to go and do these things. So in the New Testament account, these things are rare. Not only are they rare when God intervenes, but two, they are in an intervention or an intrusion. You don't see circumstances where the text says they were waiting to find out what God wanted them to do. And while they were waiting on the Lord, then God gave those instructions. No, it never says that. These things were all intrusions, every single one of them. While they were doing other things, the Holy Spirit showed up and, bam, intruded into the circumstance in, and this is the third characteristic, in a supernaturally clear way. In a supernatural and therefore clear way. Now, why was it supernatural? Because supernatural interventions are hard to miss. (laughs) There's the angel. Boom. Do this. So, and that's the point. I was talking about the lesson of the bugle from 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul concludes regarding revelation. Unless we speak with the mouth words that are clear, how will it be known what is said? And so, um, this is exactly what we see in the New Testament. Following that principle, every time God, God does intervene, it's clear. 
So, can God intervene? He can do anything he wants. But the, but the New Testament model is that God intervenes rarely. It's an intrusion. It's not being sought. The apostles are in the process of doing something else where God stops them and turns the corner. And third, when he does stop them, he's not hint, hint, hint. He is giving a powerful, clear, supernatural revelation so there's no confusion about what he wants. So my expectation is, if God is going to do the, this kind of uh, communicating as well individually to someone's life nowadays, he'd follow the same pattern for the same reasons. So, summary. What I'm saying is that the Bible, as I've pursued this question myself, I discovered the Bible does not teach that we get guidance through feelings, or having a peace about it, or open and closed doors, or circumstantial signs and fleeces, or through uh, confirmations. And when God does give special directions, as he does sometimes, the biblical pattern is that they are rare, that they are intrusive, and that they are supernatural and therefore clear. In other words, what I discovered is that there was no biblical support of any kind that I could find for the model that had been delivered to me in my community of Christians and the model that everybody seemed to be following thinking it was biblical. And this was a huge surprise to me. And it, it continues to be somewhat a mystery to me how so many Christians are off in the wrong direction on this issue. Now this is the power of socialization, it seems, Communities have a powerful impact of, 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 of influencing the beliefs of people in the community. And so we kind of go along with the pack, and if we're not looking carefully at things, we don't see that there's a mistake. And then, of course, if you, if you uh, break with the pack, you know, then people get mad at you, you know, so it's not the kind of thing that's going to happen very often. But this upset my whole apple cart with regards to finding God's will. Now, I still had to figure out what God's will was. And when I come back uh, tomorrow morning, we're going to take up the notion of what the Bible means when it uses the term God's will. And then I think this will bring us to a summary conclusion about this whole model and about the presumptions that drive it, which I, I'm going to argue are completely mistaken, that there is an entirely different model that the New Testament offers and that is actually practiced by the disciples.